Welcome to Religion and Global Challenges, the podcast by the Cambridge Interface Programme that is brought to you by the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. My name is Marlene Schäfers and I'm a British Academy Newton International Fellow at the Faculty. In today's episode, we will continue our exploration of how people understand, experience and negotiate religious difference. And to do so, I'm joined by Dr. Anush Suni, a social anthropologist and postdoctoral fellow in the Cayman Modern Turkish Studies program at Northwestern University, whose work focuses on Kurdish-Armenian relations in contemporary Eastern Turkey. Anush, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Marlena, for having me on the podcast. Anoush gained her PhD in anthropology at UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles, in 2019, with a dissertation that investigates questions of memory and the material legacies of state violence in the region of Van in southeastern Turkey. Her work focuses on the historic Armenian and the contemporary Kurdish communities in that region, where she has done extensive ethnographic fieldwork. I met Anoush to talk about how the Armenian past, and specifically the memory of the genocide, persist in Turkey's Kurdish regions today. The local experiences of the First World War, including the destruction of the Armenian community and the Kurdish complicity in that destruction, were preserved in the local communal memory in the Kurdish regions. We talked about how the historic Armenian presence in the region is embedded in the materiality of the local landscape. So today, across eastern Anatolia, you find Kurdish villagers living amid and around and amongst the material ruins of the Armenian community that was destroyed in the genocide a century ago. And we discussed how Armenian religious sites take on new meaning within Kurdish life worlds. And we realized that this monastery had a lot more significance to the local Kurdish community than simply being a dilapidated old church in the middle of the mountains. It is now an active pilgrimage site where Muslim Kurds visit in order to seek fertility and healthy children. It's not just an abandoned site that has been left to the ravages of time or simply a reflection or a testament to the violent destruction of the Armenian community that built it. it it's both of these things and it's also a site in which Kurdish locals engage with that destroyed past in the present and perform rituals through which they attempt to create a healthy and more hopeful future. Our conversation began with me asking Anoush about how the Armenian past shapes the present in eastern Turkey today, a region that is also known as northern Kurdistan or western Armenia, depending on who you talk to. So, for a little bit of historical background, before 1915, in the eastern reaches of the Ottoman Empire, there was a significant Armenian population that lived there alongside their Muslim Kurdish and Turkish neighbors. During the First World War, in the spring of 1915, the young Turk government of the Ottoman Empire made the decision to essentially eliminate what they perceived as a threat from their own Armenian, and I should also add, 
Assyrian subjects. So government agents, including army officials and soldiers, with the help of local Kurdish tribesmen in some areas, carried out what most historians call the Armenian Genocide. And this uh, happened in three principal ways. First, they massacred the young Armenian soldiers in the army and most of the men in the Armenian communities across the empire. Second, they deported the women and children from these communities to the Syrian desert where most of them starved. And third, they forcefully converted hundreds of thousands of others. And the result of this genocidal campaign was that the eastern reaches of the empire, which is what is now eastern and southeastern Turkey, were emptied of the indigenous populations of Armenians and Assyrians. And the houses, the fields, schools, churches, and monasteries that these people had built over centuries, that they had cultivated and inhabited, uh, they were abandoned, destroyed, some confiscated by government agents, others appropriated by local Muslims, and what was left was a landscape of ruins. And eventually, Muslim, Kurds, Turks, and Arabs in some areas eventually moved into the areas that were had been uh, evacuated by Armenians, and they took over those uh, plots of land, those homes, and those belongings left behind. So today, across eastern Anatolia, you find Kurdish villagers living amid and around and amongst the material ruins of the Armenian community that was destroyed in the genocide a century ago. In the Kurdish villages in the Van region and elsewhere, for instance, you might find a crumbling 10th century church that has been repurposed as a storage shed, uh, or you might see a collection of intricately carved Armenian gravestones that have been recycled into building materials for a garden wall or the side of a house. And it was these visible and tangible material remnants of the now absent Armenian community that was what first piqued my interest in this topic. I myself am Armenian-American. I was born and raised in the United States, as were my parents and three of my grandparents. When I was young, I would hear stories that were told in the family of the places where my great-grandparents had immigrated from to the United States a century ago, which include the cities of Diyarbakir, Van, Yozgat, and Arabkir, all of which are now cities located in eastern Turkey and which had a sizable Armenian community before 1915 and in which there are no Armenians uh, living now. When I was growing up, I heard about the life that Armenians had had in those places and then how the genocide had destroyed those communities. But I didn't know anything about the history of those places after 1915, or about the people who live there now and their contemporary lives and struggles. So I first went to the area in 2010 when I was just freshly out of college and starting to learn Turkish. And my mother, whose grandparents had emigrated from Van to Boston in 1905, urged me to go visit Van and see her family's place of origin. After 1905, when that couple migrated to Boston, no one from our family had ever been to Van. And so I went, not knowing what I would find, but hoping to find some trace of a connection 
with that place. And what I found, in addition to the touristic sites such as the restored 10th century Armenian Church of Akhtamar and the 3,000-year-old Von Castle, was a lively and bustling modern city with a majority Kurdish population. And at that time, I had been already in Istanbul for some months where I was learning Turkish. And so coming to Van and hearing Kurdish spoken on the street and hearing Kurdish music played in minibuses for the first time was really eye-opening. And I realized that this area, which Armenians often call Western Armenia or Historic Armenia, and which on official maps is Eastern Turkey, is also part of a broader Kurdistan, and that the Kurdish people who live there now have their own political, cultural, and social struggles that are intimately tied to the history of the now absent Armenians and the ongoing reverberations of the violent legacies of the genocide, which is manifested in part in the ongoing conflict between the Turkish army and the Kurdish armed guerrilla group, the PKK. And this, this connection has been written about um, in the recent book, Embattled Dreamlands, by sociologist David Leopold, who talks about this contested geography and how competing nations have claimed this land as their own. So traveling around the countryside in Van during that first visit a, over a decade ago and seeing the Kurdish villagers living among the ruins of medieval Armenian monasteries and churches eventually led me to my dissertation project, and now what is um, becoming my book project, in which I investigated the afterlives, remnants, and local memory of the material cultural heritage of the Armenian community in the province of Van. Now, one thing that you mentioned as you were talking about how you did your first trip to the region is that what piqued your interest were these remnants that dot the landscape Uh, the remnants of the historic Armenian presence. So could you give us some insight into the kinds of material sites, the kinds of remnants and objects that you have studied for your research project and tell us more about how local Kurds would engage with them? Absolutely. Yeah, so as I mentioned, this was one of my the focuses of my research, the afterlives of these remnants of those monumental Armenian churches and monastery that continue to make up an important part of the material landscape of the region. As part of my work, I outlined the various trajectories of these structures, some of which are still standing while others have just fallen into ruin. Some have been simply abandoned, like the monastery of Surp Tovmas in Gevash, which is visited mostly by shepherds who seek shelter there. Others have been taken over by villagers who use them as storehouses for hay or household items or stables for their livestock. And still others have been repurposed as a, perhaps a school or a, ma a mosque or even a house. And a very small number, including the most famous of them, the 10th century church of Akhtamar, have been recently officially restored and open to tourism. That one particularly as a museum, which is a point of contention. A few others are lucky to have sympathetic neighbors, such as the monastery of Varakavank, where a local Kurdish villager has for the last several years acted as an informal guardian, keeping the interior of the church clean and patching up holes in the roof and actually lobbying the government to undertake a formal restoration, which has yet to begin. 
Many churches and monasteries have also been partially or completely destroyed, either because villagers dismantled the structures in order to reuse the stones to build a house, or because of an official degree, such as in the case of the monastery of Narek, Narekavank, which was demolished by order of the local governor in 1950. And finally, most if not all Armenian sites are frequently subject to visits by hopeful treasure hunters who illegally dig wherever they can in the floors, in the walls, in the domes, or in the exteriors of these churches, seeking to unearth mythical buried gold that they believe that Armenians hid while they were fleeing massacres a century ago. And this topic of treasure hunting has been written about by um, anthropologists Zerin Özlem-Biner and also Alice von Bieberstein. So of all of the sites that I visited during my fieldwork, it was one place called Hokiatsvank, or the Convent of the Spirits, where I remember I had the most surprising encounter, and which was one that demonstrated to me quite clearly how the Armenian past of the region and the built environment of that departed community still plays a very dynamic role in the everyday lives and the historical memory of the local Kurdish community. So it was in 2016 that I traveled to the monastery with, uh, along with three Kurdish friends. It's about an hour's drive south of Van and then another hour's hike from the closest village. When we first arrived at the village, we stopped to ask a local woman how we could get to the church. And she, I remember, stuck her head in our car and she asked us, have you brought your own rooster? And when we were, you know, sort of bewildered by this question, she then proceeded to ask us, which of you can't have children? And we were, again, very confused. But then another car serendipitously showed up behind us also to ask directions for the church. And the woman asked them the same questions and they were totally unfazed. They said, yes, we brought our own rooster. And we realized these people seem to know what they're doing. Can we go along with them? And they were very friendly. So we sort of you know, joined forces and we hiked to the monastery together. When we got there, this family sacrificed their rooster in front of one of the chapels, a ruined chapel that was in front of the main building of the monastery. And they sacrificed the rooster in order to ask for a healthy pregnancy for one of the young women of their party. And we realized through this encounter that this monastery had a lot more significance to the local Kurdish community than simply being a dilapidated old church in the middle of the mountains. It is now an active pilgrimage site where Muslim Kurds visit in order to seek fertility and healthy children. It's not just an abandoned site that has been left to the ravages of time or simply a reflection or a testament to the violent destruction of the Armenian community that built it. it it's both of these things, and it's also a site in which Kurdish locals engage with that destroyed past in the present and perform rituals through which they attempt to create a healthy and more hopeful future. So I should mention that we are recording this podcast just a few days after the 24th of April, which is the official Remembrance Day of the Armenian Genocide. But the Turkish state, of course, continues to deny the Armenian Genocide. That continues to be the official state policy. But what your work shows very clearly through the presence of these remnants is that 
Kurdish communities in Turkey relate to the Armenian past very differently from the Turkish state's paradigm of denialism. So could you tell us a little bit more about Kurdish communities relate to this historical presence of the Armenian past in their lives through these remnants and how that is different from the Turkish state policy? Indeed. As you mentioned, we just passed the Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day of April 24th, when this year President Joe Biden broke with former president and released a written statement calling the massacres of Ottoman Armenians genocide. The Turkish government reacted quickly, uh, not surprisingly, with its own statement denouncing the statement from uh, the Biden administration and thus signaling that it intends to continue with the denialist position that it has long held, in which it denies that the Ottoman government carried out an intentional planned campaign to exterminate its Armenian subject population, and instead argues that, first, the Ottoman government was reacting defensively to an existential threat posed by Armenian revolutionaries, second, that there were casualties among both Armenian and Turkish communities due to wartime conditions and disease and famine, and third, they also argue that Armenians in fact carried out massacres of Turks and Muslims that constitutes a genocide. And this is the narrative that's taught in schools and repeated by officials of the Turkish state, and many citizens of Turkey buy into these stories. The Kurdish population, on the other hand, has overall a very different view of the events of 1915 and the destruction of the Armenian population. And there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, the grandparents and great-grandparents of the current Kurdish community lived side by side with Armenians for centuries, if not millennia, and they witnessed the atrocities of 1915. In some cases, members of the Kurdish communities participated in the massacres and expropriation and then took over Armenian land and houses afterwards, which has been you know, thoroughly documented by historians. And though these events were not recorded or repeated in official Turkish uh, historiography, they were recounted and memorialized through the rich tradition of Kurdish oral history, often through the epic songs sung by Dengbej or traditional singers, which is your area of expertise. And thus, the local experiences of the First World War, including the destruction of the Armenian community and the Kurdish complicity in that destruction, were preserved in the local communal memory in the Kurdish regions. Second of all, while some Kurds were perpetrators of the 1915 massacres and expropriation of Armenian property, after the destruction of the Armenian population and the founding of the Republic of Turkey, the tables were turned and the Kurdish community became the object of state violence, of repression, and destruction. Beginning with the violent repression of the Sheikh Said Rebellion in 1925 and then the Ararat Rebellion in 1930, through the Dersim massacres of 1938, and finally culminating in the ongoing war between the PKK and the Turkish army, Kurdish civilians in Turkey have suffered waves of forced migration, dislocation, massacres, and dispossession that continue to the present day. So because of this reversal of roles, and because the Kurdish community, which had once had a pivotal role as perpetrators in the destruction of the Armenians, now became victims, some members of the Kurdish community developed a new critical perspective regarding the Armenian Genocide. And this is the position that was officially adopted by the Kurdish leftist political movement and the PKK. In 2014, 
the leader of the PKK, Abdullah Öcalan, published a letter labeling the 1915 destruction of the Ottoman Armenians a genocide and calling on the government of Turkey to do the same and to honestly confront that history. And this was not an isolated gesture, but was repeated and echoed in other local efforts to acknowledge and atone for the past across the Kurdish-majority region. For instance, in 2013, the municipality of the old city of Diyarbakir put up a monument called the Monument of Common Conscience, in Turkish it's Ortak Vijdan Anate, on which they wrote, we share the pains so that they are not suffered again, in six languages, including Kurdish, Turkish, English, Armenian, Arabic, and Hebrew. And at the opening ceremony, the mayor of the district, Abdullah Demirbash, declared, quote, we Kurds, in the name of our ancestors, apologize for the massacres and deportations of the Armenians and Assyrians in 1915. And he called on the Turkish government to do the same. So beyond the official statements of the Kurdish movement, this is an attitude that has been widely adopted by Kurdish civilians across the region. And during my time in Van, for instance, on multiple occasions, when an, a Kurdish acquaintance found out that I was Armenian, they would offer me a heartfelt apology for the actions of their ancestors, and they would express regret for what had happened to the Armenians. And many people with whom I spoke drew a direct parallel between the experiences of state violence suffered by Kurds and Armenians, and expressed that sometimes through a variant of the Kurdish expression, Hun Tashtebun Emji Furavin, which means something like, you were the breakfast and we are the lunch. And some of my interlocutors even expressed a conviction that the Kurdish community was today suffering as a direct result of the crimes committed by their ancestors in 1915. And indeed, that they were even carrying a curse because their community had participated in the killing and dispossession of their Armenian neighbors. And anthropologist Adnan Celik has written on this notion of the curse in the area of Diyarbakir. And also, I should mention that anthropologist Hakim Al-Rustom has written on these intersections of Armenian and Kurdish his histories. So in my work, I examine these historical intersections and the ways in which Kurds today imagine and narrate their history as intricately imbricated with the history of the absent Armenians through the notion of palimpsests of violence. And this idea highlights both the cyclical nature of repeated violence against the minority communities of the region, both Armenian and Kurdish, as well as the destruction of the landscape and built environment. So it's both a metaphor for the waves of violence one after the other, as well as a reference to the actual physical layers of material ruins produced through those histories of violence. The term palimpsest originally referred to a medieval manuscript page that was reused for later manuscripts by writing over the original text. In such manuscripts, the earlier text or image was visible underneath and through the later text or image. In my work, I use the term palimpsest to denote not layers of text, but the layers of material remnants of violence on the landscape, which both sediment one upon the other, and also become part and parcel of these intertwined histories. So as an anthropologist searching for the traces of past communities in the ruined landscapes of the present, I am trying to read the earlier layers 
of that palimpsest. Another apt metaphor would be that of an archaeologist digging through the layers of time to see backwards into the past. And speaking of archaeologists, there is another group in southeastern Turkey who, like me, are searching for the traces of the past, who are literally digging through the ruins of the absent Armenian community to find the material remnants of that history. And those people are treasure hunters who are most often local Kurds and Turks who dig through the foundations of those crumbling stone churches and monasteries and in abandoned village cemeteries to find gold and treasure that they believe Armenians buried when they were fleeing their homes a century ago in the hopes that they would be able to return. And in my work, I argue that this widespread practice of treasure hunting is a kind of a material or embodied recognition of the history of the Armenian community in that geography and of its violent destruction. And so, I mean, until now we've talked about Kurdish-Armenian relations, so this is how you've explained your research. But of course, most Kurds today are Sunni Muslim, whereas Armenians are Christian. So I'm wondering what role does religion or this religious difference play in how Kurds relate both to the Armenian past, but also how they relate to Armenians today? Yeah, so this is a very interesting question. As you mentioned, first of all, Kurds and Armenians, by and large, belong to separate religious, ethnic, and linguistic communities, although these boundaries are, of course, porous or blurry to some degree. In Ottoman times, the subject population of the empire was ruled, organized, and categorized not by ethnic or linguistic groupings, but by the designation of religious communities, which were called milets. All Muslims were in the same category, undivided by language or ethnicity, while Armenians, and until a certain point also Assyrians, had their own milet, headed by the Armenian Patriarchate in Istanbul. And Greek Orthodox Christians and Jewish subjects each had their own milets, headed by the Greek Patriarch and the head rabbi, respectively. For centuries of Ottoman rule, the communities of the empire were separated, ruled, and administered in this way. Then, during the genocide of Ottoman Armenians beginning in 1915, religion was used not only to separate, but also to divide and sow conflict between the various communities. The Ottoman state and its Muslim Turkish elite chose to form an alliance with the Muslim Kurdish communities in the eastern reaches of the empire and called on them as brothers in Islam to attack the Christian Armenian community, which the government had decided was an existential threat because they might aid the Orthodox Christian Russian Empire which the Ottomans were fighting in the First World War. Many of my interlocutors recounted stories that they had heard from their elders that prior to the massacres of Armenians, the central government had sent imams, that is, Muslim preachers, to the eastern regions who preached to the local Muslim communities that whoever kills seven Christians would go to heaven. Many of my acquaintances would narrate the story of Kurdish participation in the genocide critically, saying something like the following. Our ancestors were ignorant, they believed these stories, they were tricked, and they turned on their own neighbors. And we regret this and we apologize on their behalf. And I have heard this narrative repeated by both religious and secular Kurds. Secular individuals might say that their ancestors were ignorant and tricked by the state authorities who used religion to divide these communities and turn them against each other. Believing Muslim Kurdish individuals, on the other hand, might say 
that the state misused religion to trick their uneducated ancestors, and then emphasize how, in fact, according to Islamic theology, Christians and Muslims are all people of the book who believe in the same God, that Allah is the Lord of everyone, not only of Muslims, and that no one has the right to kill another person, but instead that we should all respect each other and live in peace. Of course, I should mention that not all Kurds recognize the genocide and apologize. There are some, most likely those who support the government and are against the Kurdish political movement and the PKK, who may repeat the official denialist line. In my own writing, I tried to avoid explaining the genocide or other intercommunal conflicts by pointing to religion as a deciding factor. And I tried to avoid defining these communities as first and foremost Christian or Muslim, largely because such arguments and appellations have been used by scholars and also non-academics to simplify a very complicated historical and contemporary situation. The genocide, for instance, has been characterized by some as a clash of civilizations, a war of religions, of Islam versus Christianity, or of the East versus the West. In my view, such simplifications and black and white categorizations do more to obfuscate than to explain the complexities of the historical relations between the various ethnic, linguistic, and religious communities of the former Ottoman lands, who lived interspersed with one another and whose relations included both cooperation and neighborliness, intermarriage, as well as competition and forced conversion and conflict. As you just explained, of course, the subjects of the Ottoman Empire were divided into these different millets. And so what historians uh, have quite convincingly shown is that as a result, if we look at this from a historical perspective, ethnic identities only really began to develop in the late 19th century um, in this and also other regions of the Ottoman Empire because belonging to a religious community, precisely the millet was often a much stronger element of identification than being Kurdish or being Armenian or being Greek or Albanian or any of these other ethno-national identities. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how, you know, this shift from a religious identification to uh, ethno-national forms of identity have played out in your research or how you have observed them during your fieldwork. Indeed. Yeah, so we know from historical research that nationalisms and the concept of an ethnic nation connected to a specific territory are modern constructs and concepts. And up until the late Ottoman period, most Ottoman subjects most likely identified more with their locality and place of origin and their religious community rather than with any abstract idea of an ethnic nation. And this changed towards the end of the 19th century, as the nationalist movements started and nationalist sentiment began to stir to a greater or lesser degree among the various subject peoples of the Ottoman Empire. For Kurds in Turkey, the question of ethnicity is particularly fraught, because for some periods during the Republican period, their existence as a separate ethnic and linguistic group was officially denied. They were described as mountain Turks, and their language and music were banned. And this repression was what eventually led, in part, to the Kurdish political movement, which demands political and cultural rights, such as the right to education in one's mother tongue. Thus, 
How Kurds see themselves and the other groups around them depends on this historical context. Some Kurds, for instance, recognize that Kurds and Armenians are two distinct ethnic groups who speak two distinct languages, Kurdish and Armenian respectively, and who subscribe to different religions, Islam and Christianity respectively. This may seem pretty clear, but there is uh, some confusion here and there. So in Kurdish, there is a word faleh, which is used to refer to Armenians as well as other indigenous Christians, such as Assyrians, Nestorians, and Chaldeans. And I have witnessed many arguments amongst Kurdish speakers about what exactly this word means. Does it mean Christian? Does it mean Armenian? Is it derogatory? Is it neutral? Is it okay to use it? And when I was writing about this issue, I was trying to find some clarification. And so I looked to the Kurdish English Dictionary published by Dr. Michael Chayat, who is a world-renowned expert on Kurmanji Kurdish. And in his dictionary, he writes that the word faleh derives from the Arabic word falah, which means peasant or farmer. And then in Kurdish, faleh can mean three different things. One, Christian, including Armenian or Assyrian. Two, just Armenian. And three, Assyrian or Chaldean. So as far as I can tell, Depending on the geography, it has different connotations based on who the local Christians are. And this confusion arises, I think, because many Kurdish speakers use faleh as a blanket category for all indigenous Christian communities. But when they switch to speaking in Turkish, they translate the term to Ermeni, which means Armenian. Thus, in my interviews, there were many instances in which Kurdish individuals speaking Turkish would recount stories about Armenians, Ermeni, living in certain regions, such as Yüksekova or Beitsheba, while historically, in those regions, there were very few, if any, Armenians, and the majority of local Christians were Assyrians or Nestorians. So these are some you know, small details, but it shows how the minutia of language and translation can sometimes muddy or muddle the waters of the distinctions between religious and ethnic communities. Following on precisely on this question of distinguishing between the religious and the ethnic, I think when we consider modern Turkey, we tend to think of relations between um, different communities, including Kurds and Armenians, often in ethnic terms. So we think along the lines of ethnic minorities within the nation state. That's a lot of the discussions that take place, take place within this framework. But so I wonder, what would it mean to think of those relations as interreligious or interfaith rather than through the lens of ethnicity. So, you know, in other words, what might this ethnic framework obscure that quote-unquote religion um, might allow us to grasp and vice versa? That is a great question. And the first thing that comes to mind when I hear interfaith or interreligious are the shared sacred sites and shared rituals and holidays that are common across Turkey, the Middle East, and the world. For instance, the monastery that I mentioned earlier which was in the past an Armenian sacred site, is now a site of pilgrimage and ritual sacrifice for Muslim Kurds. These kinds of everyday practices that highlight how these various religious communities come together help to erode the idea of these groups as separate or opposed to one another. But going back to your question, I must say that each of these analytical categories of religion and ethnicity are both helpful and also problematic. When trying to describe or define communities such as Kurds and Armenians, there are always exceptions to the rule, always blurry borders, 
always complicating factors and extenuating circumstances. Nationalists, politicians, and others would like to have a very clear story and clear categories of us and them, this group and that group, but historical and ethnographic research demonstrates a much more complicated, much messier story of the individual and communal lives lived on the ground in the past and in the present that defy easy categorization and serve to complicate simple stories. So when I think about what the categories of ethnicity and or religion might elucidate or obscure in my research, one group that comes to mind are the Islamized Armenians, which to many, including some Armenians, might sound like an oxymoron or a contradiction in terms, since according to the Ottoman Millet system, Armenians were Armenian by definition because of their membership in the Armenian church and their adherence to the Armenian brand of Christianity. In that system, if an Armenian converted to Islam, they were no longer Armenian. They were now Muslim. And according to that logic, these categories were mutually exclusive. However, during the genocide of 1915, an unknown number, but probably many thousands of Armenians, mostly women and children, survived the massacres and deportations and were assimilated into Muslim communities of Arabs, Turks, and Kurds, some most likely by force and some voluntarily, and they changed their names and converted to Islam. These survivors were known as Kılıç Artıkları in Turkish or Remainders of the Sword. These Islamized Armenians and their descendants, of which there are probably millions living in eastern Turkey today, complicate the categories of ethnicity and religion and make people on both sides of the ethnic and religious borders very uncomfortable. And anthropologist uh, Yael Navarro has written on this idea of remnants, particularly in relation to Islamized Armenians, as disrupting, nationalizing, and homogenizing processes. So during my fieldwork, I heard one such story of a survivor of the genocide who converted to Islam and married into a Kurdish family. This story was told to me by the grandmother of one of my friends in Van. And according to her story, when she was growing up in her village in the mountains uh, near Yuksekova, there was an old woman whom the community there called Helima Bafale, which meant Helima of a Christian father. So though she had become Muslim, her community still identified her in this way. And she never had any children. Apparently, as the story goes, when Helima's family was fleeing the genocide, they buried their gold in the hopes that they would be able to return. And Helima apparently knew where the gold was buried, but she refused to tell anyone. And when she was on her deathbed, she was ill and she was going to die. The village came and they begged her and they said, tell us where the gold is buried. And she responded to them saying, in Kurdish, meaning a person can change their religion, but can't change their blood. And that's why she wouldn't tell. She said, I don't have children. I don't have descendants. Why should I tell anyone where the gold is buried? And so this story also serves to complicate these ideas of ethnicity, religion, and even if you convert, sometimes there's still those blood ties. Thinking a little bit further about the blurry categories of ethnicity and religion, one other incident from my fieldwork comes to mind in which an older Kurdish man who himself was both a believing Muslim and also a fervent supporter of the Kurdish movement, declared to me that, 
quote, Armenians are just Christian Kurds. On the one hand, some might see this as a type of denial or erasure, saying that Armenians are not a separate ethnicity, they're simply Kurds of another religion. On the other hand, it is an invitation to connect our communities. And I think this was his intention in saying this to me. He was reaching out to me and trying to recognize our commonalities. He was trying to bring me in and say, we accept you, you're one of us. And what he was saying to me is that our communities have shared this geography for millennia, have spoken each other's languages, have shared each other's food, music, and dances, and nationalisms, religious affiliations, and country borders may have come between us and driven us apart, but perhaps we have more in common than we are aware of. And if we try to peer over the walls that have been built by those who want to keep us apart, perhaps we can find more points of commonality than of difference. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Religion and Global Challenges about the continuing presence of the Armenian past in Kurdish everyday lives in what is today Eastern Turkey. You can find more information about this and previous episodes, including recommended readings if you want to dig deeper, on our website at interfaith.cam.ac.uk slash podcast. Do subscribe to our podcast if you like this show And stay tuned for coming episodes that will continue exploring everyday encounters with religious difference.